Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Paul Bananos, Associate Editor. Well, typically we do a deal in focus to wrap up the pod every week, but wow, last week, deal-making in biotech finally showed a pulse. Bayer and Sanofi are both buying companies working in cutting-edge modalities. EQRX, the Alexis Boracy-led company that has vowed to cut drug prices dramatically and launched a great fanfare a few JP Morgans ago, is going public in a SPAC that will leave it with $2 billion. And AstraZeneca has a new head of oncology R&D. Lauren will bring us up to speed on what she learned in her conversation with Susan Galbraith. But first, let's dig into these deals. So a preclinical biotech called Vividian had a big decision to make about its future. Paul, tell us what its options were and what the company chose to do. Sure. Vividian is a chemoproteomics company that's able to screen targets that are difficult to drug and find binding pockets that were previously unknown that can make them druggable targets. Now, that's an appealing proposition that could have been very compelling for public investors, and Vividian had filed for an IPO early this summer. But as it turned out, a deal team from Bayer gave them a call out of the blue late in May. And this is what I learned, by the way, from a conversation with the CEO, Jeff Hatfield, last week. So at the same time that Vividian was doing its roadshow, it was also in parallel getting into deeper into talks with Bayer about a potential buyout, and the clock was ticking. Over the course of seven weeks, the picture filled in and there were their two options, go public, potentially raising a huge sum of money in the nine digits, or accept an offer to become part of Bayer. And at the last minute, Vividian picked Bayer's offer. So it's being acquired for $1.5 billion, which is pretty huge for a preclinical biotech. And that number could go up. There's an earnout that could drive the price to $2 billion. So why did they do it? Well, the way Hatfield told me, and I heard the same sentiment from one of their board members, Tom Voivoda at Versant, the company will be able to draw on even more resources from Bayer than they would have been able to have as a public company on their own. And it's worth mentioning, this is a very flexible platform. The prospectus spells out that they've looked at 800 pockets on 250 targets and come up with small molecules already that can bind to 100 pockets on 80 targets. They have a lot of shots on goal to develop drugs. They can prosecute a lot more of those as part of a a bigger organization like Bayer. The tech, by the way, comes from scripts. And I think Lauren might be able to do a better job explaining how it works than I can. Lauren, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure. You mentioned it's a hemoproteomics platform, which importantly was developed by Ben Cravat at Scripps. I think he's the pioneer in this technology. The idea is that it uses chemical fragments to covalently bind to and tag certain reactive target sites. And when you recover those labeled proteins, you're able to identify deep, difficult to find pockets that can't be discovered with other technologies. So you can uncover different kinds of binding pockets for small molecules than you would otherwise find. And so they're using it for small molecules. They're also using it for targeted degradation, which technically is a small molecule platform, but a a different kind of technology that incorporates small molecules. Another thing in in terms of why I think the deal was good for them, I know that Bayer keeps their acquisitions intact and independent at arm's length. So I think that's always 
a pretty cool model that we've discussed before. Yeah, that's true. So they're still preclinical, right? But their lead program is getting closer to the clinic. You mentioned the targeted degrader. I think that's the inhibitor of NRF2, NERF2, if you like. But they also have an activator of NERF2 for inflammatory diseases. And deeper in their pipeline, they've got a few programs uh, that are partnered with Bristol and Roche on other targets. You're right. It's important to say what Bayer is doing culturally, allowing its acquisitions, and there are more than one, to continue at arm's length rather than integrating them more completely. Jeff Hatfield, the CEO, uh, used the words consume or digest to describe what a lot of buyers do with smaller biotechs. And he said it was important to Vividian to stay somewhat independent and somewhat autonomous. It has its own board that will carry on, especially given the alternative path that they could have gone public and and been an independent company. And for Bayer, when I talked to uh, Marianne DeBacher, who's lead dealmaker over there these days, it didn't sound like the lead program was a particularly big driver of the deal. It's mostly about the platform and what Bayer thinks it can do to hunt for new drugs. And that's part of a bigger overhaul of how Bayer is refreshing and recharging their pipeline with new technology via deals. I mentioned the other arm length companies, Asclepios, the gene therapy company they bought last year and Blue Rock before that are going into a gene and cell therapy unit with those as big building blocks, but they still have their own governance and operate at arm's length. You're right. Certainly a series of very cool deals that the pharma has been making here to transform its pipeline. It also recently added a CAR-T asset via a licensing deal with Atara Biotherapeutics. Well, Paul, it's been a slow year for M&A. I, I recall you saying that on last week's pod, mm-hmm. but, but last week was a big week. The Vividian takeout wasn't even the year's biggest deal, was it? Yeah, it's a little surprising. Maybe I, I, I shouldn't have said that. Or Rainmaker. Or, uh, <laughs> you're a rainmaker. I, I surprised myself. No, it wasn't the biggest deal of the week. Sanofi paid $3.2 billion for Translate Bio, an mRNA company that it's been partnered with for a few years. This wasn't private, so Translate Bio has been public for a while. It is the second biggest takeout this year for a biotech behind Jazz, buying GW, a company with uh, Epidiolex for rare seizure disorders. So what of Translate Bio? Well, they'd been working on a few vaccines for infectious diseases with Sanofi since, I think, 2018. But then uh, they also shifted a lot of resources into a COVID program last year, which is getting close to a data readout. And Sanofi and Translate Bio had already expanded their deal to add more infectious diseases. I think it covers all infectious diseases, which is only one area of Translate Bio's business. Uh, They've got some programs for lung diseases and also one liver disease within their pipeline. They did have one readout that wasn't so compelling in cystic fibrosis a few months ago. And a lot of the upside is in COVID and infectious diseases. Sanofi is in the process of making moves in mRNA as well, and that's kind of part of how the deal makes sense for them. It paid a lot, $3.2 billion. It already had a single-digit ownership percentage from the partnership, and now it gets the rest. Lauren, if you could tell us what Sanofi is getting, that'd be great. I think the infectious disease programs are certainly a big part of that. They have a readout for the COVID vaccine, I think, this quarter, and one for an mRNA vaccine for flu in the fourth quarter next generation of these COVID vaccines is going to be incredibly important. And everyone's looking to mRNA to solve the flu vaccine problem. You mentioned the inhaled technology, which could be important for a lot of indications. And another thing that's interesting is the manufacturing. So this was a company that's been working on the technology for a decade and had manufacturing capabilities that they were setting up for 
chronic indications, cystic fibrosis. So the idea is that they've got a lot of the manufacturing technology in place to create the big batches that are going to be needed for vaccines and things like that. Well, uh, Sanofi might not be the only company shopping for mRNA deals right now, I hear. Paul, you've had your ear to the ground. What are you hearing? Well, that's right. One possible buyer, Moderna, reported earnings last week and said it may be putting its cash to work. Obviously, it's had a lot of cash coming onto the balance sheet from sales of COVID vaccines. And it may be putting some of that cash to work in deals for technologies or assets that are complementary to what they've already been doing. That could include more mRNA deals or also gene editing or gene therapy. Company management, the CEO in particular, Stefan Bancel, said during the quarterly call. And management provided a little color on the possibilities of using, in particular, their lipid nanoparticle technology in conjunction with gene editing. And there was a market response so that drove up some stock prices among companies in gene editing, like Intellia, Editas, and Beam, and in particular, we noted. All right. And then there's another company that did a different kind of deal last week that had a choice of whether or perhaps how to go public, and that's EQRX. That's the startup uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, launched early in 2020 by former Third Rock venture partner, Alexis Boracy. They are trying to develop and launch a pipeline of drugs that can be priced far below their competitors. The phrase they used, dramatically lower. They're really looking to disrupt the industry. They've done a few deals so far, a couple with Chinese biopharmas, among others. But Paul, tell us what EQRX decided to do last week. Yeah. So my understanding was that they too were mulling an IPO. They weren't in the queue yet, having filed anything, but they're very well-funded and it would have made sense, I'm sure, for an IPO to be a, a distinct possibility, but they chose a different path. So they're merging with a SPAC. I think everyone knows by now that that's a blank check company that's already public. And this one in particular was sponsored by Kazan Capital and Corvex Management. EQRX will become a publicly traded entity that way instead of a traditional IPO. At the same time, concurrently, crossover investors are putting in $1.2 billion in a pipe deal that's on top of what's already in the SPAC, which is a little more than $550 million. And when you add in the cash EQRX already had left over from two big private rounds, they'll have about $2 billion to move forward. Now, that's a ton of money for a company that isn't even two years old. But they're an unusual company. They may be commercializing a couple of therapies very soon. They wanted to launch a commercial product very early in their lifetime and getting pretty close to that, most likely. They've got geographic rights in the West to one drug that's already on the market in China. It's a, an EGFR inhibitor called amalertinib from Jiangsu Hanso. I believe it was at ASCO. They had uh, recent phase three results that could set up a US approval. And then there's another program with phase three data as well. It's a PDL1 inhibitor called Shugamalimab from Seastone, another company in China. They have two more in late stage testing beyond that in the pipeline. And then over time, they're not just an in-licensing play. They're hoping to build the pipeline through what they call drug engineering deals. They have two so far with Excientia and Abcelera. Those are earlier stage, again, not licensing, but that will fortify the pipeline later in the decade, they hope while they get to market quickly with a couple others. So yeah, when I talked to their management, and that, that included the CEO, uh, or soon-to-be CEO, Melanie Nalakeri, I believe she pronounces, and Jamie Rubin, the former analyst who's now their CFO, 
I got the idea that this is really about scale for them. I mean, no IPO could have delivered $2 billion. It, it would have taken a few steps to get there. Like you do your big crossover round, then your big IPO, maybe even another follow-on to approach that kind of figure. And instead, they get it all at once. There are a ton of investors, a very long list. SoftBank, which has very deep pockets, is a lead investor in the pipe. It's also worth mentioning, there's some skepticism about how they're going to get there with their plans and, and how that will all play out in the marketplace in reality. The best laid plans can go awry, of course. And until they launch a drug, get payer arrangements in place and so forth, we'll get an idea of how uptake will be and we'll see how it's going to work. They do have their doubters, but they are saying that they're taking steps to work with payers early. They say they have agreements in place with payers who cover about 20% of lives in the US and they're in discussions with more another 50% to get to 70, they think. And beyond that, they're looking to reach more geographies. They have something they call a global buyers club. The way the CEO told it, they're hoping that it won't cost so much to market the drugs if they're lower cost and good. They won't need to push them so much if the market pulls them, so to speak. We're a ways away from seeing how that will work out and we'll see how it plays out when they get there. All right. Well, we've discussed what's happening with a pair of European pharmas so far in the pod, Sanofi and, of course, Bayer and what they're up to in their M&A. There's another company out there, AstraZeneca, that hasn't been standing pat. They have named a new leader of oncology R&D, Susan Galbraith. She plans to continue where her predecessor, Jose Baselga, left off driving the transformation of the pharma's cancer pipeline into cell therapies, as well as prioritizing early lines of treatment. She's also on the lookout for early stage opportunities. She's an 11-year veteran of the company. She was appointed EVP of Oncology R&D in late June. She steps into the role after the unfortunate passing of Jose Baselga in March. Lauren, you had an opportunity to speak with her at some length. What did you learn about what her priorities are? I think a lot of it is about bringing the pipeline beyond the expertise that AstraZeneca has had in oncology. So they've done really well in tumor drivers. They have a checkpoint inhibitor, a PD-1 blocker on the market, and synthetic lethality with Lymparza. A lot of the pipeline, the later pipeline has been focused on small molecules and on those types of mechanisms. And I think it's really about moving into new areas. So AstraZeneca is one of the only pharma companies that doesn't have CAR-Ts and bispecifics in the pipeline at this point, and not a lot of activity in checkpoints. Moving into cell therapies is something that the company has said they're planning to do, and it's something that they're now continuing to do. Moving into bispecifics is something that I hadn't heard about before. I think she's really just expanding on the strategy that is already in place in the transformation of the oncology pipeline over the past three years. Beyond that is expanding this idea of, as you mentioned, moving earlier into the course of disease. So that's what everyone wants to do when you're working in oncology. You start with the sickest patients where there's the highest tolerance for risk, and then you gradually move earlier. But they're looking at strategies to compress that timeline and get to the earlier patients as soon as possible. The Tigriso story, an incredibly successful EGFR inhibitor, is a good example of how they moved really quickly and something that I think she wants to apply to other programs in the pipeline. Before stepping into this role as EVP of oncology R&D, she was working in early stage R&D and the head of those early stage programs. I think it'll be interesting to see what type of innovation from the early programs she brings into the late stuff. One of the areas that she said she's interested in is epigenetics. 
which is certainly not new, but she mentioned that the company is going to have some new targets coming into the clinic in the next few years. All right. And where is she looking in terms of BD opportunities for cell therapy? She mentioned China, which is something that we've been following very closely at BioCentury. There's been a lot of innovation in China. The first Chinese CAR-T was approved earlier this year. And we've looked in depth into those CAR-T companies. There are a lot that are going after the standard CD19 CAR-Ts, but have very interesting, innovative programs following behind them. Allogenetics are a big deal and lots of new targets. Excellent. And well, Galbraith, as you mentioned, she's been involved with some very big name drugs. EGFR inhibitor Tegrisso sold more than $4 billion in 2020. PARP inhibitor Linparza and anti-PDL1 in Finzi each brought in more than $2 billion. And during her nine-year run at BMS, she worked on the Yervoy program. It'll be interesting to see where she takes AstraZeneca's oncology pipeline, and we'll certainly be tracking it here at BioCentury. All of these topics that Paul and Lauren just discussed were covered in recent stories that you can find on our website, biocentury.com. And coming up in BioCentury, we will have our usual ECP series continues. In the coming weeks, we'll have one on a company called Blue Jay. They are a China biotech focused on HBV. We will also have a story from KTT, as we call her, the triple threat, Karen Takach-Tuzman. She is working on a story on innovation in MS. So both of those stories will be coming up in August. That's all we have time for. Thanks, Lauren and Paul, for dropping the science. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.